Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today's program is all about man's best friend. Later in this hour, we're going to be talking with science writer Jules Howard. He'll join us to talk about his new book, Wonder Dog, The Science of Dogs and Their Unique Friendship with Humans. We begin the program with conversation with Alexandra Horowitz, who heads the Barnard Dog Cognition Lab. We'll be talking about her new book, The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves. Alexandra Horowitz observes dogs for a living. Research began more than two decades ago studying dogs at play and continues today with her work at the Dog Cognition Lab. She's author of several books about dogs. Um, she's author of Inside a Dog, What Dogs See, Smell, and Know, and other books on looking, being a dog, and our dogs ourselves. And uh, she, in her bio, says she lives with her family of Homo sapiens, Canis familiaris, and Felis catus in New York City. I reached Alexander Horowitz a couple of weeks ago. Here's our conversation about her, do- about her uh, book, The Year of the Puppy. So I understand, Alexander Horowitz, uh, this was... Uh, getting a quit, I think the, the puppy's name was Quid, Quiddity, right? Uh, was a, yeah. was was a COVID thing. This happened in the middle of the pandemic. It did, but that was a coincidence. Uh, I I had actually intended to follow uh, the first year of a puppy's life, um, a puppy who would come into our house, but who would be treated not just as a member of our family, but also as a subject of my kind of scientific scrutiny. Um, from, from the beginning of her life, and I was watching uh, various litters who were being raised with their moms until they're ready to go to a, a human home um, in order to get a good understanding of what happens in those first eight or ten weeks when uh, puppies are still living with their litter and their mom. And in the middle of that, watching a, one particular litter, uh, suddenly the world shut down, and I realized, oh, I'm not going to I'm not going to get to watch any more litters for a little while. I don't know how long. So I think we should adopt a puppy from this one. And we did. So we were probably some of the early pandemic puppy <laughs> adopters, but uh, it had been in the works. Uh, in fact, I think a lot of people thought, oh, you know what, if I had a lot of time at home, maybe that's when I would um, adopt a new dog. But this one was uh, also a research project for me. <laughs> uh I want to stay on that, the kind of the personal side uh, for a minute. Do you hear from people? I, I think this was a thing, right? Let's adopt a dog. Let's adopt a pet. Uh, during the, we're going to have some time during the during the pandemic. How has that played out? I guess for it, right. people you've uh, talked to. Yeah, I, there was um, a huge uptick in certain kinds of purchases, and certainly a lot, a lot of conversation about it, which led to worry among dog professionals that a lot of these dogs would you know, promptly be returned when they got to be about six or eight months and weren't cute anymore and weren't behaving and and thus leading to, you know, another kind of problem for this dog population. Um, as it turns out, there there hasn't been the huge rate of return that or uh, euthanasias that we were concerned about happening. It's sort of at the same rate as it always was. Um, and so instead, what I think we got was just a lot of people who maybe hadn't thought that they would get a dog and now want to have one with them all the time. Mm-hmm. Of course, then we go back to work, right? <laughs> so Yes. If we go back to work, you know, that's, and not everybody is back in an office, but for those people who are, I know that a number of people are negotiating 
ways to bring the dog into the office part-time, mm. right? Um, so what did happen was dogs weren't able to learn how to socialize with other dogs if they weren't taken out a lot um, and went visited dog parks. And they weren't taught by just gradual exposure how to be by themselves. So some, some people are encountering those problems um, much later than they typically would have. So you're the puppy. Of course, you're, you're wanting to, to study you know, how, how a dog, uh, from very early, the first year of life, how, how dogs become themselves. So it's science, but it's also personal, right? So I think it's turned into science and memoir. It very much is, yeah. I knew that it would be our puppy who I was observing, so I knew there would be a personal element, but I do think the personal became a bigger part of it, and that's because puppies are just really explosive, chaotic balls of energy that change the dynamic of the whole household. And especially if everybody's home all the time, it changes um, everyone's relationship with each other and with the space and sort of becomes the center of your attention. And this is the experience for everybody, not just dogs, scientists, right? So I think that that part, um, I did wind up foregrounding more than I thought I would in this book, which I thought would be kind of the same, you know, mostly science with some stories of, of our puppy um, which allowed me to kind of head into a scientific topic. But instead, I think it's about equal parts, her story and our family's story and and the story of development, early development of dogs. Uh, so tell me about Quid. Hmm. She is a little spitfire. She's now two and a <laughs> half year old, years old. So she's I still call her the puppy, though, because that was her early name. And that will always be her name uh, contrasted with our older dogs, who I called the dogs. Um, and she uh, is a, a herding breed mix, and as, ha- as a result of having some terrier in her, um, she's highly energetic, really different than any dog I had known before who lab mixes, hound mixes, uh, et cetera, who had more laconic, sort of people-centered personalities. She's, you know, really focused on squirrels or balls or any other little thing that's moving, um, high energy. But over time, she's also become very um, snuggly, you know, and she'll sit down on the sofa next to me and put her head on my lap. Um, she's like a medium-sized dog, black and with these flamboyant big eyebrows and a lot of what we call furnishings around her face, meaning basically she has a beard, a uh, very scruffy face, very typical of, of terriers and terrier mixes. And so she's like a huge character. And now she's, it's her star turn. She's on the cover of this book and she gets recognized <laughs> when we go for walks outside. <laughs> yeah, she is very cute. Uh, so she does get recognized, <laughs> does she? Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. Um, so a, an assumption has been that the canine idiosyncrasies, right? Jumping, barking, anxiety, mm-hmm. uh, that grew out of uh, dogs' early experiences but, uh, that ran counter to the evidence you saw, I guess, in Quid. What's interesting is that, yeah, when for those of us who get uh, to live with dogs much later in their life, I'd only ever lived with dogs who were several months or years into their life when they came to us, you assume that, people just assume that the fear of strangers, the rambunctious greetings, whatever it was that was standing out to the family as something that they didn't, that they're worried about or didn't like, that that was a result of some early traumatic event. Well, I saw all of Quid's early life, and as far as I can tell, she didn't have any traumas at all. 
But is she a giant barker at anything who, and anyone who comes into the house? Yeah, she is, right? Like some things are just personality, which isn't to say if you didn't have a bad experience with, um, you know, large men or toddlers early in your life as a puppy, you wouldn't subsequently show that kind of anxiety. That's absolutely the case. But it doesn't, part of what we see, kind of part of what we read as uh, the result of early traumas is is also just possible normal dog behavior that's emphasized because of genetic or environmental factors and might be the personality. So I did see that in her. Um, so I think you do draw some analogies between dog's first year and a growing child, right? Uh, so, so human development, mm-hmm. uh, dog development, th- some similarities, some ways they diverge. I wonder if you talk a little bit about that. Yeah, we're both born uh, what scientists like to call altricial, meaning we can't do that much on our own. We're not the horse that's born and precociously gets up and starts walking along with the herd. Instead, we are highly, highly dependent on human parents, and so are puppies highly dependent on their mom. The father is not usually in the scene. They Puppies are blind at birth. Uh, they're deaf. Their ear canals are closed. They can't thermoregulate. They can't, you know, manage their own temperature. They barely can move at all. Uh, they can barely lift up their giant heads. They could basically just suck. So they have to stay close to their mom, and they really, she's necessary for their survival. And if you look at a, a human baby, you know, we're not blind at birth, but normally sighted. But we have very, very poor vision as babies. We're not making sense of the sounds that we hear around us. So even though we have hearing, typically it's not organized hearing that just kind of hears what what an adult in the room thinks is happening. And it's quite a long progress for that human baby to come online as a person, right, even though they are very plainly and biologically a person. The puppy, having started in a similar place as as a young dog, much more rapidly ascends into uh, doghood, really. And within a few weeks, they are seeing, hearing, gambling about, able to find their own food, following other puppies um, and learning from other puppies, not just through exploration and adventure. And, And, you know, four months into it, babies are just learning to lift up their own heads. So I think it's an interesting thing to see, especially for those of us who have experienced the first year of a child's life, just how much slower developmental track uh, babies are on, even though they start at a similar spot. Hmm. What if you did uh, talk to me a little bit about how uh, puppies begin to make sense of the world? I guess it's a lot through smell, right? But uh, other senses and, and interactions with, uh, you know, the family they're with, I guess. Yeah, and even before that, so because they don't have vision or hearing online, um, they find their mom through smell. So smell is the first scent that is uh, on for them, and it winds up being essential in their whole life, really, more than most of us acknowledge in our in our life with our dogs. Um, but there is a period from about four weeks to 12 weeks of the, of the puppy's life called the socialization period where everything... Um, They're really open to anything. So anything that they're exposed to, like other dogs or people or cats or sheep or loud noises or helicopters or news smells or sounds or tastes, they're kind of open to. They're sort of receptive to. It's like this 
it's as though they're very generous and welcome, welcoming to anybody and not having yet a fearful or aggressive or concerned or worried response. Then that window will close and it becomes more difficult to introduce um, new people or new dogs to them, right? It's more of a, a gradual learning process and maybe they won't be free of fear if they hear a new loud noise. Um, so that's a really important early time where they learn about the things that are going to be relevant in their world. So since puppies grow up with just their litter and a, and a mom, but they're going to be taken into a human household, it's really important that in that time they get a lot of handling by lots of different types of people. Uh, little people who children are going to run at them and touch them differently than adults, men and women, different <clears throat> the more types of people they can meet, the more comfortable they will be eventually going into that home. Um, and other types of things. I, I knew our dog was going to live, if the pandemic allowed it, in the city, in New York City. Uh, so it can be pretty noisy here. There are a lot of smells. There are dogs that appear right out, of, out of buildings regularly. There are car doors slamming. That kind of exposure, like fast-paced stimulus exposure a puppy is going to have to be prepared for to have the best incorporation into their new life. So that's the time when they can most easily learn about those things. Um, tell me a bit about how a puppy um, becomes an individual personality. What are, what are the factors there? That is like the million-dollar question. I, I thought they are clearly born with some of their personality, just like us. Uh, by the way, we didn't used to use the term personality to talk about non-human animals, but now it's become much more common, and it certainly seems appropriate with dogs. Um, they're born with some of their personality, which is just to say, given, you know, if they see something, they're likely to respond a certain way. They're more interested in some types of things than others. Uh, in case of my puppy, because she was uh, had some breed characteristics typical of terriers or other and herding dogs, she's very sensitive to little things moving along the ground more than other dogs would have been. That becomes part of her personality, that genetic tendency. And then it's shaped into who they are through their early exposures. So you have a final personality by age nine, when you, nine weeks when you might adopt a dog. Not necessarily, but it's pretty much on display, right? You're going to see real differences between the slightly shy dog who likes to keep by themselves, the puppy who's going up and licking and jumping on everybody, uh, the dog who only sees other dogs or the dog who's only interested in toys, right? You're already going to see personality differences that will just probably get reified over time depending on what they're exposed to and, and, and what happens to them. Um, you've said as you went along, um, you know, doing the science, observing a quid, uh, preparing the book, you say the the book is as much about how you adjusted to quid as about how quid adjusted to the business of of growing up. Yeah, you know I think this is a a much bigger part of living with dogs, and sometimes is given consideration. The way our culture sometimes looks at dogs, it's as though well, you know, they're just like a an object you bring in your home, and you should just train them. Here's a training book, you just train them, and then they're kind of set. All right, you know, and. Furthermore, you can pick the, the specs you want with your dog. Like, I like a friend, dog who's friendly with children type of thing, just like you would with your new car. And I think that's a kind of misguided way to look at dogs. I try to completely overturn that way of looking 
And as an example, in our own family, right, it wasn't about trying to get the perfect dog to begin with or somehow shape her into the perfect dog, which she would never be if I wanted a dog who wasn't interested in squirrels and never barked at anyone. Instead, it was about, you know, working, like creating a relationship between these, this sentient creature who's come into your home and your family and learning what works for them and, and what will work for you both. And that's a long process. It's a multi-month, maybe even year-long process that um, sometimes people don't think they're signing up for, but I think that's really what it should, that's what we should come to expect when we bring a new dog into our house. I want to read this quote and have you respond to it. Uh, so this is Alexander Horowitz. I feel now I was way too focused on dog behavior. You go on to say, over time, as I began to release my vice grip on the idea that she should be someone other than who she was, speaking of quid, I began to appreciate her for who she really is. Yeah, you know, I've lived with many dogs, um, as I'm sure many of your listeners have, and she was not the type of dog I was anticipating uh, in lots of ways, personality characteristics, types of reactions to things, responses to us. And if we look at those things as just, that's bad behavior, I don't like that, then we're forgetting that actually there's a lot wonderful about them just to be seen. And the point, in my mind, of meeting a new dog and adopting someone into your family is not to just let them live up to some preconceived or not, preconceived expectation that you have, but instead to find out who they are. That's the kind of interest. Uh, to me, in all the dogs that I've lived with, frankly, it's having that knowledge of each other over time and growing together. And so that process has also happened with her and continues to happen with her. But it, um, I did have to release the idea that of, oh, do there's some behaviors I just don't like, and that's that. Uh, otherwise, you can't create a relationship with any dog but one who you just magically happen to be completely in sync with. Mm-hmm. I think you don't like the the term owner, right? What uh, what what is quid? Yeah, I remember used, the family? <laughs> I consider I could she is family for mm-hmm. sure. I really I consider, you know, I'm her person and and she's my dog, right? Like so I I kind of talk about dog people as a dog scientist. We we talk about having owners come into the lab because that does define the legal relationship between people and their dogs. But I tell you what, there's not a person who comes in who thinks that they just own some object that they're porting around. They consider, as most people do now, dogs to be a member of their family. And so there are growing movements to try to use a word which reflects that instead of just reflecting the legal relationship of um, owning dogs as personal property. How does that transfer over to, um, you know, your science? You've, you've definitely, you know, study dogs from inside out, right, to uh, try to get at what they're thinking, feeling, experiencing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I also am interested in the human-dog relationship, right, and how that interaction works or doesn't work. Um, you know, we rely on people wanting to find out more about their dogs and coming in with us and... Uh, Wanting to be in the lab to participate, have their dogs participate in little behavioral games so that they'll learn more about what's on the mind of their dogs. Um, and then the dogs go home with the person. So it works out well for everybody. Mm-hmm. 
Finally, um, is there a main takeaway that you have people take away from the year of the puppy? Um, uh, <laughs> puppies are fantastic, but the struggle can be real. And even the dog professional who, uh, you know, I study a lot of dogs. I've lived with a lot of dogs experiences a time where patience is due. It's a long process to uh, have this quadruped, a furry predator, even one we've domesticated, fit smoothly into our homes. And I hope for people who are in that process now that they have some patience and know that um, eventually they'll come out of it. Uh, But to try to imagine the dog's point of view, I think, is always a helpful approach. We've been talking with Alexander Horowitz, who heads the Dog Cognition Lab at Barnard College. The latest book is called The Year of the Puppy. Subtitle is How Dogs Become Themselves. Uh, Thank you so much. Appreciate it. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We reached Alexander Horowitz a couple weeks ago to record that conversation on her new book, The Year of the Puppy. Uh, A reminder that Alexander Horowitz uh, heads the Barnard Dog Cognition Lab. And uh, she's written uh, several books on dogs and uh, other subjects uh, as well. You can find her at alexanderhorowitz.net. Following a break, we'll continue this hour about Man's Best Friend uh, with conversation with Jules Howard, talking about his uh, new book, Wonder Dog, The Science of Dogs and Their Unique Friendship with Humans. That follows this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Today's program is all about dogs. And uh, now we're going to turn to a conversation with Jules Howard, talking about his new book, Wonder Dog, The Science of Dogs and Their Unique Friendship with Humans. Jules Howard is a wildlife expert, zoology correspondent, science writer, and broadcaster. He writes regularly for many publications, including The Guardian, and appears regularly on television in the United Kingdom. He's author of several nonfiction books for both adults and uh, children. And I reached him a couple of weeks ago via Zoom, uh, talking to me from the Midlands in England. So you've you've uh, you've written about a lot of things, you know, pandas, uh, spiders, parasites, um, you know, horses, uh, a lot of things. Uh, so why dogs for this uh, this new book? Yeah, dogs have always been there in the background throughout all of my writing and uh, I always wanted to write a book about dogs because you know they're just their behaviors their animal behavior and the science of their um, even the science of their physiology and their breeding is just so interesting but the truth is I mean there are many amazing dog writers particularly in the US really really um, some fantastic books um, about uh, dog cognition and what dogs um, think and feel and then about three years ago um, I hit upon a a group of science dogs who I call wonder dogs um, in my research for the Guardian and I was like actually this is a really interesting story to tell that incorporates aspects of science but also culture um, and how dogs have become the animal to understand um, what it is to be an animal, what it must feel like to be an animal. And so that really grabbed me. And and, and that's been um, just so exciting a project to be consumed by for so many years. Um, So you write that, uh, you know, the very special, unique relationship uh, that humans have with dogs, although our relationship the way we have it now is, you do an analogy, maybe you can tell us about this, of of a Toilet paper roll, right? 
and the, the the very last um, the very last uh, what uh, piece of that role is right now, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But but it is a very special relationship. Tell me a little bit about yeah, the, the evolution. I mean, it, to be honest, it really surprised me as well. Um, it's really easy to to look at our dogs and just think, okay, this is a long-standing relationship. Last ten thousand years, these animals have been there for us. But actually, in the great scheme of human and you know dog evolution, this is literally the last two hundred years. A lot has changed very quickly. So you know, if you imagine a, 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 a whole toilet roll laid out, and that's human evolution. Literally, the the, the last two millimeters of where that relationship with dogs takes a plunge into this um, new order, I suppose, where. Um, not all, but many dogs, uh, you know, are part of our homes. They sit on our laps. They share our beds much more than they used to. Um, we provide food for them. There's industry. There's veterinarian, you know, institutions. Uh, we have medicines for dogs. We have things like, you know, dog shows and cruffs. And that, for me, that 200 years has been absolutely incredible. But also because I don't think we're done yet. You know, I think this relationship, it can, it's changed a lot culturally in the last 200 years for most of us, um, you know, in, in the UK and the US. It's changed a lot and it will it will continue to change, I think. You also write that, uh, strangely, this unusual relationship we have with dogs, and it is unusual, unlike just about any other uh, animal-human relationship, this unusual relationship has not always been of much interest to zoologists. Yeah, I mean, when I started, and I think about this all the time, when I started off in zoology, um, dogs were definitely, they were called, scientists called them dumb wolves. In other words, there's no point studying them. You know, the real actions out in the wild, study chimpanzees, study dolphins, study wolves. That's where you'll understand what animal cognition is like. Um, and they were they were in the wilderness, I suppose. So, you know, 150 years ago, they were loved by science. 100 years ago, you know, the, 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 the tale takes a bit of a dark turn with people like Pavlov. Um, and the, they're much more sort of laboratory instruments for research. And then suddenly, you know, in the 1980s and 1990s, they're they're not worth they're not worth scientific interest. And. Again, this is this is why I, I really like dogs is they've kind of turned a corner and they've proven science wrong. And now, you know, they're telling us some amazing facts about how intelligent they are. You uh, you write that uh, one of the messages of this book is you found that um, the, the quality of science improves when we treat animals with uh, empathy. Yeah. And, and that's um, I think that's my big takeaway personally from from this. Um, in the sort of 1860s, 1870s, that approach was kind of well known. You know, a lot of the science, um, you know, coming off the back of Darwin, a lot of the science um, undertaken on dogs was done, you know, in a really anecdotal way with a scientist working with their own dog. A famous scientist called Lubbock trained his dog to pick up signs to communicate with him. And, you know, that was the science that was kind of done. And I feel like we went down a slightly different path um, where it was much more about um, dogs being, unfortunately, you know, electrocuted, uh, punished and um, uh, having their behaviours um, altered, if you like, through um, through punishment. And we kind of came through that. And that last 20 years since we've been treating, since scientists have been working with family dogs, so these are volunteer dogs with their human companions that go in and they help scientists um, with their research, 
what do we find? We find that actually dogs are super smart in a way we just did not know 50 or 100 or 150 years ago. So, you know, that, that my, my gut feeling, I suppose my want uh, um, with this book is, is to really get across that idea that, um, you know, it might not just be dogs that are this smart. Um, it might not just be dogs that are capable of such uh, depth emotionally. It may be that dogs are the animal that teaches us that, you know, other mammals can feel the same things. You know, this isn't, uh, it could well be cats, for instance, or even rats, you know, that are capable of many of the cognitive feats that, that dogs are. So uh, my feeling is like dogs open up a path, I suppose, for future exploration. You, you feel like this message uh, applies, I guess, across any species we study. Right. Because, yeah. yeah. you know, I, I, made, made progress with dogs and other species. I think there are, you know, still some species being mistreated in, in studying. Yeah, them. absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, even, um, you know, the, the plight of laboratory mice and rats, you know, we mustn't forget that they have the same sort of mammal chemicals moving through their bloodstreams as we do and that dogs do, you know. So if we're saying, OK, well, dogs have uh, this 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 hormone called oxytocin that affects their mood and makes them have um, sort of uh, emotional um, good feelings when they unite with their human owners. If rats have the same chemicals moving in their bloodstreams, well, what does that say about rats? And the answer is probably, um, you know, humans are not alone in feeling the way that we feel and we're part of a mammal spectrum, I suppose you could say. You talked about a period of mistreatment, you know, Pavlov and Skinner. I want to read this. Uh, Pavlov and Skinner, scientists who thought every quirk and a facet of dog behavior could be trimmed down to simple conditioned responses. So there, there's a relationship there, right, be- between, uh, you know, what, what they thought. It was just conditioned response. Latest science is showing us more and more the the intelligence of the species. Yeah, definitely. And, and I guess by extension, so you've got someone like Pavlov who's saying, okay, and uh, Skinner's building on those ideas, saying, okay, dog does something, dog uh, has a good experience, therefore repeats that, you know, begs for a treat again or whatever, uh, or dog has a bad experience and gets hurt in some way and it never repeats that experience. So by extension, they're, they're kind of, those those scientists were kind of saying, look, there's no such thing as free will. We're all beholden to uh, mistakes or you know, profiteering exercises we've made in the past. We're all products of experience in other way, in other, in other words. Um, and, you know, that idea of uh, nurture rather than nature was pretty much, you look at, you know, psychology textbooks, and that's all there was, you know, in the 1950s or so. And this idea that actually, um, technically genetics, I suppose, that nature and nurture uh, combine to create the, the organisms we are today um, it is we can be so much more confident about about that now thanks to um genetics but particularly you know the impact that dogs had on the field of genetics in in the 1970s and 80s i want to jump into some of the fascinating science that's coming out now but uh, you treat bias you, you you get that out of the way early you say hey i'm not unbiased i love dogs <laughs> uh, what is it about dogs yeah it's it's really difficult to to uh, to get to to really, I mean, I've I've written a lot as as you mentioned about um, chimpanzees and and um, uh, silly insects actually and mites and parasites and things like that. It's really easy to kind of um, give a kind of scientific account of those animals, and scientists have been doing that for you know more than a hundred years. But with dogs, most people who 
most scientists who study dogs love dogs. They have them in their house. And it's a little bit like bringing work home with you or taking the home into work. It's really hard to, uh, well, I found it and I still find it incredibly hard to to, 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 to dissociate the two so i think i think personally i see nothing wrong in saying you know what um i'm going to write about science i'm going to tell you about the latest science but also you know i have to confess this is an animal that i really really like and acknowledge that bias kind of really early on i could have gone a step further but i i toned it back <laughs> and i could have gone a step further by basically you know uh anthropomorphizing anthropomorphizing these animals and giving them you know voices i suppose um, human voices. Uh, and that was really tempting. But, you know, I've, I've managed hopefully to calm myself down and, and keep this uh, mostly a scientific book. I have talked about my own dog, um, Biff, uh, my childhood dog quite a lot, and another dog uh, called Chan and our latest dog, Oz. And again, like I've done that. Um, I tend to dot those animals as stories throughout the book. Um, and ways to sort of connect because the connection we all have with our own pets is just so strong, isn't it? It really is. Yeah, it is. So you, uh, you, you talk about, you treat some very interesting questions. I'll just pepper you with these and you can give me, you know, some, some brief answers. Of course, uh, with the understanding, the disclaimer that is much more complex, right? Um, but, uh, do, do dog emotions, the emotion that dogs feel, does that, does that feel like our own? Can we, can we, can we tell? Can we get anywhere close to that? Um, okay, quick answer. Uh, the markers of those emotions seem to be the same or very similar to ours. So you know, put a dog in an uh, put a dog in an fMRI scanner and show it a tree and compare that to the scan from a human who's, you know, connecting with, um, uh, you know, being shown a burger or something like that, then you're going to see the same thing. If a human sees a loved one in an fMRI machine, then, you know, positive warm feelings in a certain part of the brain, you would see the same with a dog and its human companion. And it's the same with these blood hormones um, that correlate really closely with the mood of dogs. Um, You know, we see the same hormones pumping through our own body. So blunt answer it, it seems to look the same. More science, the, the more science we do, the closer we'll get to answering that question. Uh, I guess indications are, the, you know, that, that beloved dog that, uh, that I love, uh, it's, it's, it's markers are showing maybe he loves me back, right? It's not just, not just stimulus response. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to be, but of course the, yeah. the, the, it's the waters are made murky by the fact that clearly dogs, um, especially hungry dogs, uh, right. are you know they're gonna they're gonna right. do some plastic behaviours just like kids would do. You know, I, I I see so many common similarities, I guess, between uh, child behaviour and you know dog behaviour at times. Um, so yeah, I mean there, there, there's a bit at play here. I mean when I think of and I didn't used to by the way I didn't used to be comfortable scientifically talking about love and throughout this process I've kind kind of got to the point where I'm like well in the vast majority of dogs and human you know companion relationships love is pretty much the only word going um I tend to look with our dog it's like those moments late at night when he's not hungry anymore <laughs> and he's lying with us and the, you know you can look at you can feel his his heart beating less frequently when you give him a stroke and he's relaxing and there's a there's that, that kind of look in his eyes so yeah I, I think we've got to be careful about that word love but you know the science is telling us that you know their love is is like our love 
What, uh, as far as we can tell, what do dogs think of us? That's a really good question, actually. Um, and I think about this all the time. Like we use the word, um, we all have a in our mind's eye, you know, what is a dog? We all picture that thing moving through our houses. But the truth is that, you know, nine out of 10 dogs on planet Earth don't have that relationship with us. You know, then they're, they're free ranging dogs, they're village dogs, they're moving from place to place and basically going from, uh, you know, often going to humans or certain bins or even eating human feces, you know, these are, uh, are animals associated with the human ecosystem. So what do dogs think of us? By a close approximation, most dogs think of us as a, a nice food source and there's no getting around that. The dogs in our houses, what do they think of us? They um, certainly see us as a great place to be safe, secure and have food. But clearly they also, I think, in most cases, see us as part of the family. You know, when we go, when I walk our dog at the moment with our, with, like when the kids come and, and my partner comes, we go for a walk and you can see Oz is just, you know, milling around. He's having a great time. He considers himself as much a human, I would say, or as, as much as as much as the family of any other individual, you know, among us. So I think that's what they think is they think I feel all the emotions that any other connected family member would feel. Um, do dogs recognize themselves as individuals? So another great question. And and like when I, in fact, when I first started out, that was always my interest. Um, my zoological interest was, you know, do, do they recognize themselves as you exactly as you say, as individuals, the, the, the old, the, I mean, many of your listeners will know this, but, you know, the old way of trying to work out an answer to that question was you just show them a mirror and you, you know, with chimpanzees, you put a little paint splodge on the chimpanzee and, and you see whether the chimpanzee uses the mirror and sees this paint splodge and then tries to remove it. And variations of that study have been used for many years. And as many of your listeners will know, dogs don't really respond like that in a mirror they for, when they're a puppy they get a bit fearful but then they just sort of forget that you know they're just like oh, well that's a mirror but the answer to that question is um come about through smell so redesigning the test making the test um, the mirror test more about smells particularly the smell of a dog's own urine we can see how dogs respond to you know sniffing their own urine and they sort of like okay i'll just leave that i'll carry on with my routine and you can see through some pretty cool studies like that you can see that dogs are um uh, making decisions based on what looks like an understanding of self again I'd, i think the science is going to the more science we do on this in the next 10 or 20 years, the more decisive we can be. My gut feeling, and I know I shouldn't say this as a science writer, is that I think dogs, like humans, can have periods of reflection. So little moments in the day when they're really, really sort of able to sort of go, okay, I get this. And I think chimpanzees are the same. And in fact, I don't spend all my day thinking about my own brain. I don't know about you. <laughs> I spend a lot of my day just mundanely getting on with jobs. Mm. So, you know, I think I think dogs are, are probably like that. Uh, in the in the book, I, I my favorite study, okay, is and I again I think about this all the time, is um Alexandra Horowitz's study on dogs playing. And we see this in our parks 
you know, all the time in our in our dog parks, you see dogs playing and they're they're not just trying out one style, you know, dogs that want to play extremely, they just want to play all the time, go up to dogs that aren't so interested in playing and they harangue them and they trick them and they strategize these dogs into trying to play with them. And I think by looking at some of those amazing studies and looking literally at what we're seeing with our eyes in parks um, and gardens, uh, how dogs interact, I think we can be really confident that, that, they, that they definitely have a not just a sense of self, but a sense of kind of like, I want to do this. I love this. How am I going to get to do this? So asking questions and solving them themselves. And again, it goes back to what we were saying before, you know, the nicer, the better we treat animals, the more intelligent they show us to be. The, you know, sorry about that. The better they show us to be, um, the nicer we treat animals, the, the kind of better they show us to be. And those play studies are, you know, just the ultimate in that. They're the ultimate in showing us um, how complex dogs can be. Do uh, do dogs have episodic memory similar to ours? Yeah, that is a bit like consciousness. That is um, one of the questions that we're still really struggling to find the right test for, the right methodology for. Um I suspect we'll get there. And there has been some studies on um, uh, rats, um, what goes on in their brains when they go to familiar places, for instance. Um, And there are certain parts of the brain that light up as if there are uh, memories, if you like, being activated. But the truth is we we don't really know. We don't know if they are able to reflect and go, oh, do you know what? I haven't done this for two years. I haven't done this for ages. Or, you know, when they smell something uh, certainly in my experience when dogs smell something puppyish they smell or even smell a person they haven't seen since they were a puppy they do seem to revert well in my experience they seem to revert into a sort of puppy-like passion i suppose and there's a few few of the fields i walk through i you know if i choose a different field we haven't walked in a while i can see that his behavior might have changed if he had uh, fun with another dog in that field for instance you know look around you can see just you know and it looks like there is a reflection there on i'm in a field i had a great time with the dog here uh, a, a while ago is it going to happen again so i think the, the there's loads of hints there loads of hints we see them with our own eyes we need some more science to properly um understand the answer i suppose Dogs' noses are incredible, of course. That's how they interact mostly with the world, right? And I'm reading that um, dogs' noses can even detect thermal radiation. Absolutely gobsmack. I mean, that really, uh, again, it underlines just how much stuff we're discovering at the moment. You know, there's literally hundreds of amazing um, research reports like that coming out every year at the moment. And that, that bit of research... Um, yeah, it suggests that dogs, as they're snuffling around in the leaves, um, are able to sense um, changes in temperature indicative of uh, small mammals in burrows, basically. But that might be like, you know, dogs have got quite a range, as you know, in their senses of smell. Certain breeds, you know, bloodhounds, for instance, are 10 times better than Scottish terriers, for instance, with their noses. So it may well be that those really sensitive um, bloodhounds and types of dogs, if you like, are super heat sensitive, a bit like snakes. Breeds haven't quite got that ability. But again, you know, this is an animal that's shared our homes for 200 years and we're, we're learning pretty basic stuff, new stuff about these animals that you would have thought we had known that for years. But no, this new research has really, has really surprised everyone, really. 
I want to close with uh, having you respond to this uh, quote. Uh, you, you talk about the field of uh, anthrozoology. Uh, citizen dog science, dog in parentheses, uh, experiments where dogs are not the subjects but playmates and canine collaborators. So you call them wonder dogs, right? This, I guess this, I, is, I, this, is, this is maybe where the science is going or the, the, the way science is being done. Yeah, I agree. I, I think there's no better word to describe um, the impact that these dogs, these family dogs, these really happy, positively rewarded um, uh, family dogs. There's there's no better word than wonder dog to describe the impact that they are having on science right now. Long may it continue. Well, we've been talking with Jules Howard, author most recently of Wonder Dog. Uh, fascinating book, well worth the read. That's out and available now. And he joined us by Zoom from uh, the Midlands, right? Somewhere in the Midlands in in England. Uh, Jules (laughs) Howard, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you ever so much, Tom. It's brilliant. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today. Earlier in the hour, we heard from Alexandra Horowitz about her book, uh, The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves, or thanks to her. Our thanks to Jules Howard. Wonder Dog, The Science of Dogs and Their Unique Friendship with Humans is his latest uh, book. And you can find him at juleshoward.co.uk. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today.